You're listening to Inside Content, the TV industry podcast. This show is brought to you by Three Vision, a global TV industry consultancy specializing in content acquisition, strategy, research, and business development. Each episode, we give you VIP access to the views and experiences of senior TV executives and discuss the latest TV industry trends and insights. Welcome to the first episode of Inside Content Season 5. We are excited to be back, bringing you the biggest TV trends, insights and developments from the ever-changing TV market. To kick things off, I'm joined by Ruth Berry, Managing Director of Global Distribution at ITV Studios. Amongst other things, we discuss ITV Studios' co-productions, the rise of pan-regional streamers and how ITV maintains a high value for its content across multiple windows. So I'm joined today on Inside Content by Ruth Berry, the Managing Director of Global Distribution at ITV Studios. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Jonathan. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you. Um, maybe to start with, you could just tell us a little bit about your role. I can indeed. So um, I run the distribution business here at ITV Studios, um, looking after predominantly everything that is finished tape. So that is all of the all multi-genres, whether we're looking at scripted, unscripted, um, formatted content. So I have the joy of, of selling Love Island around the world, um, which I'm sure many people would give their right arm for these days. Um, but also, I think that the nature of the distribution business um, now, and, and I'm pretty much six years to the day since I took over as, as MD here, is really changed the last few years. And the nature of what we do on a financing scale is probably where I spend most of my time. Yeah, particularly on the drama front, but really the role that distributors play as, as finance houses you know, deficit financing, co-production, co-financing, um, sourcing, ways to make content uh, financeable and made, I guess, is probably where we spend most of our time now as a distribution business and really trying to solve programming challenges for our customers around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of brings me on really to the first thing I wanted to talk about, which you know, obviously you get involved in a lot of the deal making for the sort of co-production and, and financing of shows. And it, it seems to be a, an area which is evolving um, constantly. Would, do you see any sort of changes or trends in the, in the funding models for these shows? Um, and there's many, and you're right, it's been evolving for quite a long time now. And I think we're working through so many different patterns of co-productions i think it's it's a big catch-all bucket isn't it that term co-production um that is involving a lot of different stages parties platforms um and i, I think there's rarely one size fits all it seems to be driven more through the nature of the project than it does through the, the model as such so i think you know of late the last few years we've certainly seen more private equity money um sort of financial investment money into this space which is quite interesting um we're looking at a couple of models in that space haven't done it don't really need to do it i think the beauty of the scale of our business is that generally we are still have an appetite for quite big deficit financing and, and are able to do that so 
I always say necessity is the mother of invention and we're not sort of at necessity level yet, but I guess if cost inflation continues the way it is right now, um, necessity will, will change quite quickly. Um, we are finding our sort of co-financing, co-development discussions are happening much, much earlier now. So I look at it in, in two different buckets. I think you've got what I would call our more traditional client base that are looking at how they compete in the bigger budget shows that are tending to go more towards streamers now and if they can build consortiums and come together in on projects and we saw you know the alliance formed a couple of years ago looking to do that we've seen a lot of Scandinavian broadcasters come together to sort of co-buy to get into the higher end drama projects I'm definitely seeing more of that and seeing marriages between some of our traditional clients who want to come in together but ultimately probably come in earlier and look to co-development, co-develop ideas rather, so that they're in there from the beginning and can really think about how you help have a voice in that story to make it as relevant as possible for your audience that you're getting, you know, real value for the money that you're investing in that project. So that goes through on a co-development to a co-financing, co-production continuum. Um, I think part of the reason is also a lot of traditional partners trying to find like-minded souls in the market. You know, it's it's quite hard if you're having to bring in more than two co-pro partners because the voice gets pretty crowded. So I think if if they can pair up, uh, you know, we're certainly seeing a couple of broadcasters come to us, even with briefs actually saying, look, this is what we're looking for. Can you go and source projects for us that sort of fit into this space? So I think they were definitely seeing some of those models um, changing and moving upstream. I think, you know, historically, we've seen things like the co-production model for Bodyguard with Netflix or The Serpent, again, BBC Netflix model. I, I'm going to speculate. I I'm, I'm think we'll see more of those coming back in the near future. I think as some of the, the global streamers are looking at their programming strategies and the cost of some of those co-pro models versus their investments in originals. Um, so I think let's let's see what happens in that sort of co-production world as well. And I think, um, you know, a few other things, uh, the good examples, we've done our first non-scripted big co-production model. So uh, a year on planet Earth, a huge natural history project from Plimsoll um, that we're distributing. Um, it's the size and scale of a drama in terms of cost. And, uh, you know, we, we sought co-production partners. So ITV commissioned it. Um, we have co-production partners in Fox Nation in the US, WDR in Germany. Tencent in China um, and really brought the financing together to enable that show to happen. Uh, another probably good example, um, old fashioned one, I could probably call it. Um, we've got a title called Blackwater from uh, one of our Danish production companies, but it's for SVT in Sweden. And that's a co-production with ARD in Germany. And I think that Scandinavian German co-production model has been around for, I reckon, 20 years plus and is still going strong. So I think we still definitely see the co-pro space in that way. And then more and more we're seeing, I think, pan-regional streamers and a broadcaster. So uh, we've had Litvinenko is, is a co-production with ITV and Nent Viaplay in the Nordics. And then actually we've, we've recently announced Archie, which is a co-production with ITV and BritBox internationally. So I think there's a really good spectrum there of where we're finding um sort of co-production models and they will keep evolving uh, in the near future too so so on the on the financing side for for itv studios is there a a sort of um percentage limit of the risk you're willing to willing to take 
I mean, talking to other um, sort of uh, other studios in a similar position to you it seems to be a you know thirty to thirty five percent maximum, depend depending on the cost and depending on you know what they've committed to um, already. But but is there a sort of limit above which you just don't really want to go? We genuinely look at it on a project by project basis. So we don't have a have a percentage. And in fact, I haven't I haven't even done the maths to sort of say where they would land if if I did. But it, it's it's project specific for us. There are some projects that come to us that might need a lower um, you know deficit, but actually we don't think the commercial appetite internationally is enough. Um, to fill the materiality of the gap and there's other projects where the gap might be materially way bigger but actually we know it's exactly in the wheelhouse of several of our buyers so we're happy to take the risk so we, we really look at it on a project by project basis what we know our partners are looking for internationally um, and then yeah I mean you're right there's an element of balancing the risk across your portfolio and if we've taken a couple of big swings already in the year and we're feeling a little bit um, you know maybe a bit geared up in some of that risk then we'll probably take lower, slightly lower risk options but um but there's no there's no sort of hard and fast rule for us we will look at projects on their own merit and, and make a decision that way and and i, I mean I, I think i probably know the answer to this but if you know if you're taking a bigger risk but you think it's right in the sweet spot for some of your clients you're going to have a quick chat with them first, I assume, and sort of run it by them and, and make sure they're not having, I guess, some other discussion with someone else you didn't know about to fill the fill the slots you were thinking it might fill for them. Within reason, we, we won't have that conversation until we've picked up the show. I think it's a dangerous, slippery slope. And I hope I hope others don't do that to us, but um, in that you don't want to burn a show. You know, if a producer, we want to support our producers getting shows made. And um, I think you have to be very careful not to burn a show on a market before you're taking it out to market. So I think, you know, within within reason, you can have your chats once you know your you, where the model is and the fate of the show. But um, it, there's a there's a I think there's definitely a, a sort of a way of doing it yeah. that leaves, yeah. you know, all the options available still. Yeah. Okay, and, and on the sort of risk side, to, to manage your risk, you know, I've, I've, a few people I've spoken to on the distribution side you know, say, well, yes, they they get their money back first, effectively. Um, so, you know, that significantly manages the risk of the, of the finance they're putting in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another interesting thing with, with co-production models or co-financing models is you know distributors are behaving more and more like banks and it's interesting if you look at the sort of models that the 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 private money or you know that the sort of bank money is coming into in drama the deals are, are reasonably different actually to the distributor deals and i think that's something we'll all probably be looking at over the next 12 months particularly with inflation and things the way that it is um is is how much we behave in the sort of traditional distribution sense in our deal terms and how much we behave more like a bank and a financier, but um, you know, getting your money out first for distribution is key. Um, you've taken all the risk. You've often deficited far in advance of any money coming back your way because you'll put it in to help cash flow, pre-production, production, production um, and then you know, obviously, from selling and starting a show in drama, there's there's quite a lead time between money out, money in. So I think there's um, yeah, you have to manage your risk and your cost of money effectively. 
Um, and that thought process gets a bit more complicated when the uh, the economy is uh, is in a level of flux. Yeah, 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 I'm glad. ITV Studios has had another exciting year of growth. So how is that impacting your pipeline and slate? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's part of the journey we're making in ITV Studios, isn't it? And I think we've we've made quite a few investments over the last couple of years, which are starting to bear fruit, which is is great. So I think, um, you know, Plimsoll, we, we were already working with them on a year on planet Earth. I think, um, you know, we'd, we'd looked to work with them on a distribution level for, for many years and I've always loved what they do and, and have been trying to get more into that natural history, high end factual space. So I think we are delighted to, to be working um, with them and, and bringing them into the ITV Studios family. And I think what happens next is the big question, um, which we'll be working working on uh, in due course. Um, but selling Year on Planet Earth is great for us, um, really enjoying that experience. And we have another show from them actually called Mother Nature that we're launching soon. Um, so really pleased about that. But I think, you know, it, it is part of the broader stable that we've been working with. And I, I talked about Blackwater a little bit earlier as a co-pro that's coming from Apple Tree in Denmark, which is another one of our sort of more recent um, acquisitions. Um, we've got a great show called Chorus Girls coming um, from them uh, end of the year, early next year, which is a brilliant piece of Danish television that I think will be really noisy um, and, uh, and and has, does have a very loud voice in, in a very sort of zeitgeist me too type way, even though it's, it's a story from the 70s that, that lands very firmly in, in the present. Um, you know, and equally, uh, you know, we've brought in people like Patrick Spence, um, Nicola Schindler, Dominic Treadwell Collins um, in the last uh, year or so and, and have great shows coming through bearing fruit. So amazing selling Litvinenko at the moment to talk about timing. Um, but, but, you know, Litvinenko has been an incredible story and an incredible time to tell that story. Um and Patrick's also got maternal coming through. We've got Nolly coming from Nicola Schindler and an amazing uh, development slate from Nicola, as you would imagine. And then, you know, it's brilliant. We're selling a show called You and Me that Dominic Treadwell Collins has just produced, which is absolutely beautiful. Really amazing piece of television. So I think overall, we've just been, we're, we're just really fortunate. We have a phenomenal slate and a phenomenal amount of talent within the studio um, that just keeps going from strength to strength. So Plimsoll being part of the family now adds to that, uh, particularly on a non-scripted side. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're really excited. Great, good. Well, on, on the, let's talk a little bit about um, your actual distribution, actually selling the shows, selling the content. Um, how do you how do you decide whether you sell to a global streamer or you go on a market by market basis? Is it I mean um, you know do you actually go out there and test the water in lots of different markets or how does it, how does it evolve? Tell me how that how that journey happens. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to unpack that a little bit because I, I think in the last six months or so it's probably dawned on me. You know we we talked talk about global streamers, but kind of everyone's a streamer the global streamers have become a lot more local um and will buy on a market by market basis uh we've seen other um parties become regional streamers you know if you think of viaplay um in particular growing much more into that sort of pan-regional scaled up streamer we've got britbox international growing its footprint into a bigger pan-regional um streamer and then we've got the local broadcasters becoming national streamers, right? So I, I sort of kind of 
speculate that actually everyone's a streamer. And even if you are not not a streamer first and you're a streamer second, you will become a streamer first quite quickly. And if you look at ITV and ITVX and, and even the, the world we're going through, you know, here it's it's um it's it's not dissimilar, and it's how we've seen a lot of our our clients moving over time, and and all of our buyers now have got a streaming component in part of their deal. Um, so I think that the global streamer market is a really interesting one because it's a totally different web now of local and global. So several years ago, when we we sold um, Bodyguard to Netflix, um, you know, as, as a global sort of co-production acquisition or, you know, streaming deal, that was, um, we we knew what the appetite was from our local buyers. You know, I think we, we could guess pretty much and we do a pretty robust process on all of our dramas of a bottom up as to what we think we could sell it for and I think the the streaming deals only really become or become interesting if you can get the right type of deal so you know first of all it has to be worth a lot more than you would sell it on a title by title sort of territory by territory basis rather um because there's lots of reasons why you sell in markets your territories and your traditional partners who who you know, you have a very long standing relationship with. Um, but then it's also about the right position. And, and I think, um, you know, as you'll remember for us, you know, Bodyguard had a very big life post Netflix as well. Yeah. Um, and that was brilliant. You know, we, we had two big bites of the cherry there. Uh, and I think that sort of smart deal making enabled us to see things differently. And dare I say it, there were a number of clients when we announced the Netflix deal who said, I'll never buy a show after Netflix. And Lo and behold, many of them did buy Bodyguard after Netflix. And do you know what? In many of those markets, in fact, most of those markets, it still performed as well as they had expected if they'd bought it in the first window as it did in the second window. And I think, you know, that says a few things. One, which is that depends maybe on the subscription levels and the user levels of a Netflix sub base in a market because how many people had engaged with it on Netflix or would actually rather engage with it on a France television or whoever else, um, or will watch it again. Um, but I think there was a lot of learnings we had out of that. And I think we're about to go through a similar exercise because the serpent, which we we equally did a, a, a global deal with Netflix, um, is due to be released from its hold back soon, um, sort of in the next 12 months, I think. So, so we'll see how that plays out again. Um, so I think that, that you you evaluate it on a again on a title by title market by market basis uh, and where you know the appetite is and I think that's really the art of our business is understanding what people want where and how you can look at that commercial model. Um, I think again uh, unpacking that streamer piece we are seeing a lot more uh, pan territory streamers coming in and buying and that's another discussion that's quite hard because their footprints aren't the same so yeah. over the last 12 months it's been quite fascinating taking shows to market and having offers from I don't know let's say an HBO Max a Viaplay a national buyer um, uh, a, you know a Britbox or whoever but colliding with you know, this this streamer has 10 markets. This buyer has one. This guy has seven. Yeah. The footprint big, is totally it's a big different. jigsaw, isn't it? It's, it's, a, a, it's a huge jigsaw that's only getting more complicated. And then you look at, okay, well, can I keep everyone happy and window the content? And then we're sort of selling up to three, four windows up front, which is amazing. I mean, it's insane to think that that's how our distribution world has has 
you know kind of reached that but the complexity in that sort of waterfall and web of okay how do we slice and dice to sort of get the most out of this to give everyone a bit of a window to reach the audiences to fund the shows to recover deficits you know it's it's, it's a much more complex world and then I think your question probably was largely directed at what we look at as the SVOD streamers right but yeah. if you ask that same question around AVOD or particularly ask me that question in the AVOD global streaming world probably in 12 to 24 months I think my answer will be reasonably complex as well yeah <laughs> yeah I'm sure I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about AVOD a bit later but um you know you've had more success than others in selling those sort of second windows after a, a Netflix license or a, a, a global s license why do you think that is why why have you been successful in that I think um it's hard to tell isn't it but I I, I do know that that from our side there is there, there's quite a sort of ferocious level of discipline in terms of how we sell and the rights that we sell and the time we sell it for and the holdbacks and the windows and the slicing and dicing um and I think we look really carefully at that and and how we sort of really maximize the value of the content that we sell and I think we have to because ultimately as shows get more and more expensive if we can't deliver more value in the sales side we can't fund the production side so it's it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that we're, we're constantly chasing our tail on so I think we've been really diligent at looking at how we sell um and I think we've also got a great level of relationships with our buyers and despite some of our you know, closest buyers saying, I won't buy a show after Netflix, and then they do. I think just the quality of the content equally speaks for itself. And is if that, it's is that so, dangerous, though? Is that, I mean, just to, just to think about that point briefly, you know, if I'm a buyer and I, you convince me to buy a show after Netflix or someone similar, um, and it performs as well as I thought it was going to perform if I bought it first one day, Am I thinking, hmm, am I spending too much on first windows and I should just be buying the second window? Well, you don't know what they spent on the second window versus the first window. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I so have an idea, really, but we can talk about that another time. Yeah, no, it really, it really depends. Um, there aren't that many global co-pros around at the moment, Jonathan, is the answer as well. You know, Bodyguard was done, I think, back in about 2018, I think. I think it could be three, four years old now. And, you know, there haven't been many, there haven't been many since then. So yeah. that's actually almost an old model now. People have learned to move on and what that means next time round, who knows. Um, but the, the sort of slicing and dicing of rights and selling second windows after Netflix, I'd, I'd extend that really to selling multiple windows after any sale. Yeah. You know, and really selling three to four windows on a drama um, in the first few years of its life is, is really what we do almost as standard. So with, with the launch of ITVX, do you think that's, um, is that going to give you lots more shows to sell? I think there's a possibility for sure. I think, you know, we see that with any streaming service, the volume of content is far greater usually than on the linear platform. So I think we've already heard the, the, the great stories from ITVX about ramping up content volume um, and the deals that they're doing. I think um, we were definitely selling more content to them um, and hopefully we'll have more content to sell I think we've seen some great commissions already I think with malpractice maternal Minarchu that was announced uh, recently and I think as well as 
volume because bear in mind things like love island is now going to have another um you know winter series and I, so I think we'll pick up more volume on the scripted and the non-scripted side actually ITVX is is due to speak to a broader range of audience so um one of the things I'm quite excited about is the breadth of content that we will have to sell from ITVX so you and me is a good example again I, I mentioned earlier that Dominic's made which is a younger skewing I would say show um tell me everything which is a YA show that NoHo are making for ITVX um or commissioned for ITV2 but is front and center I think of ITVX is uh really interesting when you look at YA and that's not a space that's that that has a huge amount of content but it is certainly a very interesting one for a lot of our buyers um and a lot of streamers around the world so I think we'll see a different type of content coming out of ITVX which is great um and then still a lot of the the sort of similar types of shows we've had before when you think about you know maternal malpractice and shows like that so I think yes hopefully we'll have a few more but I think we'll also have a wider breadth of content which is really good and I and I love as a distributor because I think I always want us to have something for everyone so whether that is a high-end, you know, British uh, crime thriller, whether it's it's more of a, a sort of a, a, you know, a Vera or a Shetland um, crime drama that, that people know and love as sort of British heritage, or whether it's a YA show, whether it's another big um, tape of a big format, whether it's more sort of varied, I'm a celebrity or Love Island or whatever it might be. I think that breadth uh, for us to go to market with is really, really good. Yeah. Good. Um, just going back to talk about the, the global streaming world, um, you know, the, obviously it seems that every six months a new global streamer is announced and launching. What do you think that world's going to look like in three years' time? It's really interesting, isn't it? And um, my God, if you'd asked me that question three years ago, I'd have been completely wrong, I'm sure. Yeah, me too. Um, so <laughs> it's pure speculation. Um, but I think we'll have sort of more and less, right? So when you see the announcements coming out of Warner Brothers Discovery, which for you and I in the timing of this was only last week, so it's it's early to to unpack too much about it, but you know bringing HBO Max Discovery Plus together. When you think about what Disney Plus has brought in under their stable, you'll see these enormous sort of multi-genre streamers, and that will be if you count that as one, but it's actually got multiple multiple layers, right? So I think you'll see a lot more of of that sort of consolidation. Um, I think I've talked a little bit about the the pan regional strength of streaming, and I think that will stay. I think that that scale is probably easier to achieve than a global one. Um, so because I think of the, because of the local, the ability to sort of do local focus. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, I think if you're doing global things, you will hit and miss in more places. Yeah. If you're more targeted on the pan-regional level, I think there's a there should be, in theory, a great level of success. I think sports is becoming really interesting for the streamers at the moment. I think that's quite fascinating seeing how people are so, or certainly, you know, are sort of more um, uh, non-sports driven streamers are leaning heavily more in towards sports now. And you see that with Apple, you'll see that with Discovery, um, you know, and then speculation around Netflix. I know they've gone gaming direction, but they're, they're certainly doing the sports companion pieces, right? When you think about Drive to Survive and the documentary on Tour de France and, and sort of all of the sports um 
content that they've got, even if it's not live sports. I think it's really interesting on the streamer side. So I think we'll see a lot more uh, on the fringes around that. Um, I think a lot of the niche streamers will probably start to fall away or will stay very niche. I think they'll find it hard to get out of the, their box there, because if you think in future, you've got your connected television in your living room, which is where you're really consuming, whether it's television, film, gaming, Spotify, music, whatever it is in one place, you know, you're, if you've got nine tiles on your front page and the, you're generally going to go for the big general entertainment type streamers I think rather than some of the niche ones so I think we'll see a level of consolidation um over time and people coming in onto umbrellas and then I reckon I don't know my my big guess as well again it's only a guess is that we'll see this sort of global tiering between free and pay you'll have pay you'll have subsidized ad funded pay but it'll still be pay and then you'll have free and you'll end up probably a little bit like we have coming through on the old sort of Viacom model and you'll have Paramount Plus in pay and you'll have Pluto in free. And then, you know, what will that unpack globally like as, as people unravel some of the existing deals they've got in markets, where will they wrap up into global platforms? Um, and what will that look like with Fox and Tubi, Paramount Plus, Pluto? You know, how, how will that play out over time? I think it's gonna be really interesting. So I think we're looking at quite different, we, the pay tier has evolved already. I think how the free to air tier evolves is going to be fascinating. So, so talking about that, what you know, the, the world of AVOD and sort of everyone's talking about fast channels. Um, what what do you think of that? What what's what's um, ITV's approach to that? Yeah, look, it's a really, really exciting space, isn't it? And I think um, to some extent, you know, AVOD Fast is the new free TV. So, uh, in the way that SVOD was the new pay TV several years ago I think this is the next evolution uh, of our of our business to be honest um and, and I think the biggest surprise to me is the success of fast and and I guess to quantify success it's audience engagement in fast because in many ways it's no different to a sort of 1980s television experience <laughs> you can't fast forward rewind it, it's so bizarre, right? I don't know whether there's a nostalgic element going on here, but um, I think I think what is driving fast is generally single IP channels. And that's really interesting because in a world where we often read, no doubt through your own uh, three vision uh, research, Jonathan, but we, we often read, don't we, about just too much choice and is there too much choice? And I think someone said to me the other day that on average, people are spending about 40 minutes in the Netflix platform trying to choose something to watch before they actually even can decide what they want. And if that's true, which 40 minutes sounds like a very long time, I would have been lost long before yeah. then. But, you know, that that means that, that it's not surprising that a single IP fast channel becomes interesting because if I really love Hell's Kitchen yeah. and I just want to watch Hell's Kitchen on a loop and I don't want to have to get to the end of an episode and think, oh, what do I watch now? I can just keep watching it and enjoy it for three, four hours, whatever I, I, I want, then I can see why that's really compelling. And we are seeing a lot of success around our single IP fast channels and that one in particular. Um, and we're living and learning all the time. So we have got quite a few deals um, out there uh, on the sort of AVOD and fast side. We've got a lot in discussion. Um, we've also ventured into publishing a fair bit of our own content. So we've launched five YouTube channels in the last 12 months. Um, and are learning quite a lot about uh, audience engagement. And bear in mind, you know, as a distribution business, we've been B2B forever. 
you know, other than our, our self-published DVD label, um, which is still alive, um, you know, we've, we've generally been a B2B business and we've, we've looked at performance through what happened on overnights on people who bought our shows. And that world is changing massively now. So we can get a lot more data, a lot more insight into our content. Um, we can put it up into different places. We can bring it down. We can experiment. So, you know, for a business that has 90,000 hours of, of content in our catalog, this, this sort of AVOD model that can now afford to, to give material money for content is really, really exciting. You know, it, three, two, three years ago, it didn't. You, it just wasn't worth the cost of you actually you know putting your content into a service and now it's really meaningful and we're, we're coming up against the first conversations where we can deliver as much value through an AVOD deal or, a, or a putting out putting our own content into the AVOD space than we can licensing it to and a is that, is, that, is that in more territories than just the US or is that yeah well? yeah and right question because you're right, this is the US is by far the most material market and the one where, you know, you quickly see a difference between, you know, free and pay. And that this this is the new free model coming into the US for us. Um, the UK is probably the second biggest. It's still it's still very young and it's still reasonably material, but it's growing rapidly. And then we are seeing parts of Western Europe where there are now more meaningful um, values coming out of the AVOD market. So it's definitely not everywhere. Um, there are a few markets that are punching above their weight, probably, I'd say. Um, but it is growing very quickly. So we are, you know, we're trying to, to learn a lot from what we are doing um, to understand, you know, where, where the right place is to be at the right time. Yeah. Good. So... I'm conscious of the fact we're sort of running out of time a little bit, but there's one more question I just want to ask you, which is, in the next 12 months, what excites you most about ITV Studios? Golly, lots. I mean, golly, lots, right? I think there's, you know, it's a, it's a really good time to be in television and um, there's a humongous demand for content and that's really exciting. And I think the breadth of demand and the sort of, um, the competition between buyers is 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 just really incredible, and and people are really working out what their content strategy is. So, for us, there's a, there's a great opportunity in that we have brilliant creative talent. Um, we've got phenomenal slates and projects. I think we're really well positioned to to win quite a lot of that business that's coming out there in the market from a production perspective, and then from a distribution perspective. And then I think there's a lot of other models at the moment and monetization models that for a studio are becoming really, really interesting. So we just talked a little bit about Avon and Fast. I think that's really interesting, particularly if you own big brands like we do around House Kitchen or Love Island or I'm a Celebrity, The Voice. You know, I think for the, that brand world and then when you think about further monetization and building into metaverses and gaming or, you know, there's just a whole rich world of content right now and and a real hunger for people to consume. So I, I'm really excited about the possibilities and, and the sort of the new business areas that we can move into um, and what we can do. So there's there's a lot to be excited about. Um, Good. Yeah. Good. So, and so will, will you come back in 12 months and and tell me what was the most exciting thing <laughs> of course i will of course Brilliant. i will
Brilliant. <laughs> Ruth, listen, thank you very much for, for being with us today. And um, I look forward to seeing you soon. My pleasure. You too, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Content, the TV industry podcast brought to you by Three Vision. With decades of TV industry experience and real world success, we know the ins and outs of the market like nobody else. To learn more about our TV consultancy services, head to threevision.tv.